And what's your name? Hello, welcome to Talking Records. My name is Jed, and I am joined by my good friend, Craig. Say hello, Craig. Hi, Jed. Thanks for having me today. We are sitting here drinking freshly brewed coffee. Dude, watching you make this in your little coffee laboratory was quite an experience. It tastes just as good as it did (laughs) while making it. We are actually not going to be talking about coffee today. We are going to be talking about one of our favorite records of all time. No Use for Names, 1997 album, Making Friends. This was such a great album back in high school, Jed. I loved it. So amazing. It was released in 1997 on Fat Wreck, and the band recorded what was to be their fourth album at Motor Studios in San Francisco under the production of the great Ryan Green. Ryan Green, of course, was the guy who produced all the great records on Fat before 2005, after which I guess he had a falling out with Fat Wreck co-owner Fat Mike. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's what I read. I don't know what it was about, but I noticed that uh, he doesn't really do too many of their uh, latest releases. At least they kept the drama indoors. <laughs> uh, he either produced or engineered so many of the records I loved in the late 90s and early 2000s. Strung out Suburban t- Teenage Wiesling Blues. Oh, it was a great album, too. Lagwagon's Double Platinum. No Effects' is Punk and Drublick. Uh But I guess he also did pre-production on like a Megadeth album? That's a little bit of a different genre mix. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess even engineered an Usher album. So the guy is definitely versatile. Usher, huh? Yes. Wow, I had no clue. <laughs> So, uh, some, I guess people will argue that, you know, all the bands on Fat sounded the same and you could just kind of swap the singers, but I, I totally disagree. I mean, you could say that about anything, really, country music, Irish music, rap, it all sounds the same, right? I mean, if you think about the actual genre, the fast-paced punk style skate punk back in the 90s, I mean, everything was fast-paced and moving. If you cross it over, like you said, to country, I mean, all those songs sound <laughs> the same too. Um, all the modern R&B and rap, they all have the same style sound, right? It's true. I mean, there's not really a whole lot of variation you can do with a rapid-fire punk rock. <laughs> I think a lot of the albums on Fat in like 96, 97, 98 were recorded using very similar methods, and the bands were definitely trying to achieve a particular sound, but I think all the bands are quite distinct. I mean, I think the the drumming, per se, was probably one of the most influential things across the whole genre. I mean, that completely influenced my style of drumming, you know, that fast-paced. I mean, I guess you could consider it you know, the Fat Rex style of drumming, you know, the you know, whole <laughs> the whole thing there, you know, it was great. I mean, why would you not want to replicate that in any manner possible? Right. Oh, totally. And I, I think all the bands definitely had their distinct sound. I mean, strung out, like, their thrash sound, no effects, you know, had, like, the quirkiness, um... No Use obviously had a very melodic sound. Lagwagon used all those metal riffs throughout. So, I mean, I thought they all sounded quite different. Some people were like, oh, they all sound the same. But. I mean, yeah, sound design-wise, they all had their own unique style. Like you said, Lagwagon had that very, like, chunky, you know, guitar-heavy sound, you know, the metal riffs. And then, um, you know, No Effects was very, like, more... It was more poppy with the sound style and design and, you know, a little bit more, um, you know, up and down with their their paces there but yeah oh yeah you know double platinum going back i mean think that album that was like straight out balls to the wall start to finish on that album you know oh my god but like no let up <laughs> <laughs> but we're not here to talk about that album that's a whole well, other we'll story we'll get to that one maybe in another uh, <laughs> another session but 
So, Craig, when did you first hear Making Friends? Well, I, I didn't show you this earlier. I'm going to pull it out right now. This here is a mixtape you made me back in high school. Oh, man. I lost the cassette port portion of it. Oh, it's, the best part. The best part, you know, the actual music. But <laughs> it's got the actual song listings on here. So the very first time I heard No Use for a Name was Revenge. It was track four on this mixtape. I'll let you look at that little oh, handwriting there from back in high school. My chicken scratch. Man, that uh, that was my first experience. And uh, from there, I mean, you just must know more about this band. And Wow, look at this tape. There's some good stuff on there, huh? Of course, you folks can't see what's on this tape. Um, but, yes, there are definitely some good No Use for Name tunes on here some face to face so i think the first track on there from uh new fan was revenge revenge yeah. revenge that was the first time i ever heard no use for a name oh wow was on that mixtape you made for me and then from there the rest is history you were hooked yeah that was that's a great song to start with which is completely different than the uh, the whole style i fell in love with with no use for a name that song is a little bit more a little slower not as much of that uh that fast-paced beat but mm-hmm. you know it got me interested enough where i sought out more i think actually i think you made some more mixtapes for me with uh i think you made better friends the whole mixtape for me oh man i was back then i was trying to press mixtapes on everyone that would take one you, i think uh, we i've were, got a mix for you i've got a mix for you but that's when we were started that first <laughs> band we were in the, the stone cutters yeah. and you're like here you gotta listen to this band these guys are great i was like listen to this and do this on drums <laughs> <laughs> well we, we did <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, a friend had given me their previous album, Leche con Carne, on cassette tape. And I played it cassette to tape? death. Yes. On cassette tape. And do uh, you remember my Subaru? The fat ride? <laughs> yeah. That white Subaru. Well, it had a tape deck in there. And I remember um, the tape deck would function so that when side A would run out, it would automatically flip the tape and then side B would kick in. And so... That was um, high tech back then. It was really high tech. <laughs> tape would automatically flip. So... It would just flip in my car endlessly, just flipping for weeks, and I would listen to that album nonstop, nonstop. It's pretty sad, though. I mean, I remember back when we used to put cassette tapes in our cars. I didn't have the auto flip feature, so you were more apt to listen to side A as opposed to side B mm-hmm. and forget all about the second half of the, the album sometimes. Right. And I think that was the case for me with this because I, I listened to side A constantly, and I, I could rattle through the first like six or seven tracks, and then side B, it's like... A little less familiar, but I still know him, you know? <laughs> the pain of fast-forwarding to the end of side A, so you could take it out, flip it, and put it back in yeah, and get that pesky side B. Um, <laughs> so, like, you know, the context of this is I had, I had heard Leche con Carne so many times, and I loved it. So then when I heard that Making Friends was coming out, I was so excited for new music uh, by the band. But I was worried because I loved Leche so much, um, I was worried I was going to be let down. And were you? No, definitely not. Oh, but you know, also I learned that half the band was gone because um, Ed Greger and Steve Papoots had left the band. So I was like, oh man, what what are they going to do? And what did they do, Jed? <laughs> I'm setting you up here. They recorded an amazing album. <laughs> Woo! But uh, <laughs> um, do you remember those like those fat record like fanzine slash catalogs that used to come out? Oh yeah, yeah. You, well, you, you were subscribed to all that, weren't you? Oh yeah mail order stuff back in the day well the all the fat um cds used to come with like a like an address on the back and it was like send for a free catalog of like shit or something i don't know and i always used to like send away for those things and just like pour over the drawings and articles and like lists and you know double as a catalog so when making friends was coming out i immediately 
sent in an order with a check um, and just like waited for weeks for the CD to arrive in the mail. <laughs> you didn't digitally download it? This was before all that, <laughs> way before all that. I couldn't instantly have it. I had to wait. And I remember just like checking the mailbox all the time. Where is my CD? I think I ordered like a couple of stickers and some posters. But I was You actually like, ordered it on CD? I ordered it on CD. Then it was, uh, it was slow coming. But when I finally got there, I was very pleased. So uh, we're going to be talking about making friends, and uh, one of the cool things, uh, Craig, is that in preparation for this, I actually had an opportunity to speak with Roy Koff, the drummer for No Use for a Name, which was a huge thrill. Yeah, that was. he was such a big influence on my style growing up back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it was an incredible I mean, it, I think it's completely amazing that he sat down with you and you guys went over this. this is, I can't wait to hear what you guys talked about. It was really exciting. I mean... You know, one of my favorite bands of all time, one of my favorite records of all time, The Backbeat, you know, just sitting there talking about the album. Um, it was really cool. He was incredibly enthusiastic about talking about the record with me, and I, you know, got a strong sense from him that the band just had a blast recording this record. Did he lead on to anything about, like, any bonus material coming out or hidden stuff that was never released? He actually did talk a little bit about some things that are coming up in the future for the band, but I, I don't think that... Uh, I'm at liberty too. Oh, come on. You're going to throw that out there? You're just going to throw the bone and say, hey, you go find it later? <laughs> I'm going to tease you, and oh. I'm going to make myself seem really important right now. Like, I have insider information. <laughs> you got insider information. And I guess I kind of do, but as a, as a huge No Use fan um, who, you know, had worried that we weren't going to get any more No Use for Name stuff after Tony's passing, it's really exciting as a fan to know that there's more stuff coming out and that we can look forward to some, some more No Use that, stuff. That is some good news right there. I'm, I'm excited to hear that. Yeah. So uh, we were talking, he was telling me a little bit about, you know, the prep for the album and some of the stuff that the band was going through. Um, after Leche Con Carne, both Ed Greger and Steve Papoots had left the band, as I mentioned. Uh, Chris Shiflett, who you probably know as the guitarist for the Foo Fighters now, was actually working in the fat mailroom um, when No Use was looking for a guitarist. And he was quickly enlisted. And then shortly uh, before recording Making Friends, uh, Matt Riddle came over. Uh, Matt was currently playing in two other bands at the, at the, at the time. Uh, he played on the 1996 Pulley album, A Steam Driven Engine, which is a great album. And was also playing in a band called 22 Jacks, a kind of supergroup with an ever-changing lineup of guys that included Joe Sibb, Steve Soto of the Adolescents, C.J. Ramone of the Ramones was in 22 Jacks for a while. Scott Shiflett, uh, face-to-face, who's Chris's brother. Um, and apparently Chris Shiflett and then future No Use for Name guitarist Dave Nassi also uh, had stints in 22 Jacks, so that was kind of cool. Very to interesting. Learn more about. I had to go and check out more of their music. I used to have a seven-inch record uh, by 22 Jacks. It was actually a split with another band, but I have no idea where it went. <laughs> it's not the record you snapped over your knee that time. <laughs> you remember that? Well, we were in video class in high school, making a video about. Uh, <laughs> what was that? Was that what song were we using? Now that was. Uh... I think it was a Dinosaur Junior record, which. Yep, I just heard like a million people recoil in horror that we snapped a Dinosaur <laughs> Jr. record over your over your knee. But um, yeah, so I had to check them out. And you know, with the new guys in place, there was just this intense level of excitement for where the band was heading. Uh, Leche Con Carne was obviously very successful, and the band entered the studio with all the confidence in the world. Um, you know, in the late 90s, California Skate Punk was exploding with success. You know, bands like The Offspring and Green Day... 
uh, huge tours like the Warp Tour were going on. It was just an incredible wave of great music coming out during that time. You actually saw the Warp Tour back in hometown, right? I saw the second Warp Tour. The first Warp Tour, I was playing center field for my little league team. Oh. And I remember standing out in center field with my back to home plate. You're like Smalls? Listening, <laughs> listening to like Sublime was off on stage because we we play our games right uh, at the fairground, right? Like at the airport, yeah, where the warp tour was going on, and I just remember hearing sublimes like, boom, boom, you know, and just being like, "What is that?" <laughs> <laughs> One of the cool things that Rory pointed out to me was that Ryan Green um, had just finished tracking Lagwagon's Double Platinum um, when he began work on Making Friends, and he ended up mixing both albums at the same time. I imagine this guy must have been hearing these songs in his sleep. Really, so. How does he differentiate between the two if he's recording both at the same time? That, that's just a, a mind of wonders right there. You would, Yeah, you would think that he'd just get totally lost in like what... I mean, not that the two albums sound exactly the same, but you got to figure like when he's tracking drums or something, just hearing that boom, but a boom but a boom and it's like, you know, when he closes his eyes at night. This is when you go to bed and you're tapping your feet to the beat of the songs all night long and you don't even realize it. Yeah, crazy. All right, Craig, should we break it down track by track? Jed, I think that is an absolutely fantastic idea. Let's do it. album is so solid from start to finish from the glengarry glenn ross intro with alec baldwin responding with fuck you that's my name to the loop of bagpipes at the end the album is high energy fast and fun um apparently new guitarist chris shiflett did not know that tony was going to throw in that that intro and i guess when he like played it for his family it totally caught him off guard <laughs> so he had no clue when they did the uh the post-production that that was getting added as an intro I guess that's uh, what I gather. He was he was not expecting that, which is actually funny. It reminds me of a, a funny story because when I was working as a radio DJ at Westfield State, I used to toss making friends into one of the two CD players that they had. The other player would have a song playing and you could kind of cue up the second song and have it all ready to go for when the first song would end. You could just kind of punch the button as the first song was fading out. You know, all this like cool radio stuff. Um, and... You know, most of the time I was doing too many things at once, and sometimes I would forget to select the track on Making Friends. And when you forget to select the track, obviously it plays the first song. Um, once I was trying to get up to, to play Sidewalk or, or Growing Down or something, and I forgot to cue it. And as the previous song was ending, I hit the play button and was horrified to suddenly hear Ed Harris and Alec Baldwin talking. I had to literally dive back to the console to hit the edit button before the F-bomb uh, not that anyone cared or was even listening. Did you hit the dump button? Just dove over Seven the Seven seconds of silence. Blip. Yep. 
It's college radio, though. I mean, there's no rules for college radio, is there? Yeah, they had like, you know, try not to say F too many times, but nobody's really listening anyway. Yeah, there's so. like three of you, right? And they're all in the studio. Yeah, it was like, you know, me, my roommate. Usually not even not even my roommate. Because <laughs> reality, it's what, like a three-mile radius around the, the college campus? If, if you left campus, you were, you were already losing the station. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's great, though. I mean, the first song here, like, it busts straight in with that signature Fat Wreck drum beat. And uh, just the melodic guitars. And it just it sets that fast pace for this, this complete album here. You know, like, boom, this is what we're doing. Punch you right in the face. Like you said, with that opening. Like, oh, my God, it's, I'm already in shock. And then, boom, the song starts right in and it just flies. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. I mean, I love this song as the opener. It's quick. The arpeggio open chords, the pounding drums. Ooh, arpeggio. Can you, can you define that? Arpeggio. Arpeggio is like single notes of a chord. Ding, ding, ding. Um, <laughs> that quick snare roll. And, you know, you've got that, like you said, that classic Fat Wreck galloping drum beat. Um, I love Tony as a lyricist, and I think he's written some really great lyrics. And apparently, in this first song, he says, no intention. He does. So is that how you got the name for our band? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) Come on. There's a little bit of influence there, I think. Well, as you recall, this album came out in 97. And and no intention started in? 96? So a backstory for anybody listening right now is Jed and I, we started a band. Well, actually, I joined after the band was already started. And I we think were, that was on a Tuesday. It was on a Tuesday <laughs> in the afternoon. <laughs> and we were called No Intention, and uh, apparently Jed got some titling choices from this album, even though he won't admit to it right no, now. No, I'm denying it. <laughs> I came up with it way before. No. All right. But, you know, we're, we're mentioning this because, obviously, this album and No Use for a Name and a lot of these these fat bands were a huge influence on our our punk band that, we, you know, we created back in the late 90s, heavily influenced by 90s skate punk. And this album in particular, I mean, if you listen to some of the stuff that we recorded, you can you can hear No Use for a Name all over it. I think at one time we thought we were in a, a fat wreck label. <laughs> So this song is obviously about relationships that could have been missed opportunities. Uh, Sometimes people cross paths in life and, you know, sometimes they cross paths again and things just still don't work out. Um, And one of the things I thought was kind of cool about this song is in the later part of their career, uh, they started playing the song much differently live. Tony claimed Fat Mike from No Effects told him uh, that they had to start playing it like a ska song. Um, and if you go on YouTube, actually, you can hear them play it as a ska song, which is pretty cool. Tony once said the best ska songs were played by punk bands. Of course, about halfway through, they open it up and play it at top speed. So that was all around the whole era where punk started crossing over into ska, I'm guessing. And then No Effects had that like that little influence there, right? Well, yeah. If you think about it, like 97 was when this album came out. Of course, you know, they were playing this ska song much later in their career. But 97 was a big year for, for ska. And you're right. I mean, No Effects had So Long and Thanks for All the Shoes, which is like heavily drenched in ska guitar. And positive up, you know, upstrokes. Ska was on the way up, and a lot, you know, a lot of the skate punk and ska were sort of closely connected. So it's kind of cool. Sorry, I just burped into the microphone. That was gross. <laughs> Edit that out, please. This coffee is delicious. Do you like this coffee? <laughs> we, had a, we watched it bloom earlier. We did. That was amazing. And the look of joy, the look of pure joy on your face. I had such a good time making this cup of coffee. <laughs> I mean, I'm having more fun now talking about the coffee, but it was just, it was fun. I appreciate you bringing the coffee up again. Thank you. It'll come back up like at least three more times. 
All right, should we move on to uh, the second track? Yes, Invincible. All right, so what I think is great about this next song is the the way the first song ends, and it's got this like guitar whine out. And if you listen to it like on a CD straight through, it continues right through from the first song to the second song, where they're they're like, and then the drums they just they bang on right and boom 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 boom, and uh, it's that driving drum beat, and then with the guitar melody, it just like wails into it. I don't know, it just it hits me right in the the heartstrings. I loved it, you know. <laughs> Gets you pumped up from the first song into the second song. I love how this song rises up from the feedback outro of The Answer is Still No with those punishing kick drum hits. Um, according to Rory, Metallica was a huge influence on him and Tony, and they wanted to create a drum sound that was similar to what Metallica was doing. A little Lars in there, huh? Yeah. I mean, I always thought... Oops. <laughs> I think the, the thing that... um struck us both the same was the way they, they just blended the two songs together, huh? With that, that, that wailing tones you were just talking about. Yeah, I mean, it was a seamless flow from one song to the next. And as I was saying before I got that... that it was a coffee burp little, there. Uh, something in my throat there. Um, <laughs> apparently, Ryan Green placed a quarter on the kick drum and had a Kevlar kick pad on the drum had to create like that really tacky... Is that how he got that, that snappy sound? That tacky I sound. love that snappy sound. Yeah. Um, and the drums are tracked live. Everything was tracked live back then. And, you know, both Rory and Tony were laying down scratch tracks. Uh, Rory explained to me that they would just try to play the songs faster and harder every time. So every take, every time they had to redo it, faster, harder, more aggressive. The more gusto. Oh, man. And, uh, you know, with just a few weeks to record and tour is already booked and, and things already in the works, um, it was a frantic process. He describes it as being just full of energy and you know i think that really comes through in the recorded output you know i can't get over that whole quarter on the kick kick drum head i know it's pretty amazing like you would never think that that would sound good but. i mean it's the, the little tricks you do in the re studio recording just to get the, the sound you're looking for but yeah remember when we were recording our albums and i always wanted that like that snappy bass drum sound yes we we just we never put a quarter on the drum head. <laughs> i don't think we had any quarters we probably didn't have any change at all on this <laughs> So this track is another song about relationships, uh, but in this one, the two people have reached a point where it's over, and there's nothing left to say. Uh, he's singing to someone who uh, can't recognize the things he's trying to do to help. Uh, he's realizing she'll never change. Can't change some people. And I love the guitar solo from Shiflet. He starts out on the end of the guitar with some nice crunchy low notes and then suddenly he's way up on the neck of the guitar it's such a great contrast in the span of like a 14 second solo <laughs> all right growing down is the next song all right It's a day when it happens every day. 
just a lot of great d- dual guitar work and palm muting. That's so fun to play along with. Uh, Shiflet definitely brought a more mature sound to the band. The, the guitar lines in the album are fantastic. I also love the cameo from Dickie Barrett of the Boston's on this song. It was uh, a very uh, melodic uh, song for sure. Yes, very melodic, very poppy. You know, they were known for sort of their more, where they're like poppier sound as opposed to hardcore sound. Um, but then bring in Dickie Barrett, which is, you know, from a ska band, just totally um, makes it sound very diverse, I guess. I think the thing about this song is, you know, track three, it kind of slows the pace of the album down a little bit because you get the first two driving songs. Mm. And this one kind of like pulls it back a little bit to give you something different so you're not getting a, the same experience. You're experiencing something new. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when you're eating food and you get a little bite of something different, a little different <laughs> flavor in there, but you still like it and you still want more of it. Yeah. It's kind of what this song kind of reminds me of. Definitely. Are you hungry? I'm getting hungry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, back to Dickie Barrett. Apparently, he was good friends with Shiflet uh, from back in 1995. When the Boston's toured with a band called Wax. Never heard of them. Never heard of them. Uh, Chris was the roadie for Wax, and on tour he bonded with Dickie Barrett, and they connected with him again when both Chris and Matt Riddle were in 22 Jacks. There's that band again. And they toured with the Boston's. According to Rory, uh, the Boston's were on tour, and Dickie came in and threw down the line in the song. He mentioned that he and Tony were completely starstruck by having Dickie Barrett in the studio. They were like in awe when he was there, huh? Totally. I mean, wouldn't you be? Dickie Barrett, he's just such a commanding force. You know, and I never really picked up on that in this song, but now that you're mentioning it, it's Mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, I I can see that now. That gruff bridge. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I always thought it was a calculated move on the part of No Use, because in 97, like we talked about earlier, the Boston's were blowing up, Ska was huge. To get Dickie on your record would certainly spark curiosity amongst casual listeners. I mean, no effects enlisted Nate Albert of the Boston's to play most of the ska, uh, Ska guitar on So Long and Thanks for All the Shoes. Um, I thought it was totally calculated, but according to Rory, he just happened to be in town, and they just were like, hey, come in, throw something down on our record. I think that's pretty cool. Some of the best things are sometimes spontaneous. Yeah, well, you got to be spontaneous, I guess. Keep it interesting. Um, this song is about an accidental pregnancy and how the guy just wants nothing to do with it. Sounds like a nice guy, huh? Sounds like a Jerry Springer episode. <laughs> it's your fault. I don't think that it's even mine. He blames her without taking any responsibility. He drinks and solves problems with his fist. I think the lyrics in this song are really good. Sly was great at writing songs from other people's perspectives. It's very interesting. You know, funny story, when we were uh, going through these tracks, when I was listening to them ahead of time, just uh, refreshing my memory, mm. I had a uh, writer, my one-and-a-half-year-old, sitting right here next <laughs> to me. And for some reason, when this song started playing, he's sitting there, and he's bopping, he's jumping around, he's throwing his fists around. Nice. Like, he's a very melodic kid, and uh, this song, I don't know, just the, the melody of the song struck him, and he, just, he was going nuts, dancing along to it. I loved every minute of it. Yeah, it's a real catchy song. That's awesome that he was in here slam dancing. Oh, yeah, the, the, kid, <laughs> the kid's all about music, so every time we're listening, he's, he's always about dancing and playing. I'm glad you're prepping him. Gotta, gotta start him young, man. You know, Think about when we were little, what we were listening to. Oh, my God. Let's see. When I was, how old is he? Three? Two? Like one and a half. One and a half. <laughs> when I was one and a half, let's see. I was listening to Baba Black Sheep. Yeah. The Wiggles. <laughs> twinkle, twinkle, little star. I don't know. Were the Wiggles around? I don't think so. <laughs> 1981 and a half. <laughs> All right. On to the next song. On the on Outside. On the Outside. After all that's happened, what is it that we've gained? I've made mistakes before, 
and never live them down. After all you come from me, I'm bound. Don't say another word. Just see you on the outside, but we can't both be sane. Just speaking for yourself. I'm bleeding on the inside, makes you bite and bit. But now I know I'll never be the same. Uh, the song comes in with a bang, but then drops down to just Tony Sly and his guitar. Then it kicks back up in with the backing vocals by Karina Denik, or Denike Denik. Uh, the dance hall crashers. Apparently, Tony and Matt wrote this one with the idea that a female vocal part would be used to respond to the vocals. So they had that in mind that they wanted a female vocal. They just didn't have the idea of who at the moment when they wrote it. I'm not sure if they had Karina in mind or if they if they just knew they wanted to have sort of the accompanying uh, backing vocal. But it's a pretty cool idea. I do. I love the aspect of the the female vocals rebutting Tony Sly's dialogue, kind of like a back and forth dialogue. You don't really pick up on it, but I, I think it's kind of a cool little contrast there. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's another failed relationship song. A uh, guy is pining after a girl who's ready to move on. He's talking of bleeding from the inside and trying to forget. I love the way Karina's vocals are the argumentative response to his attempts to examine the relationship. You're speaking for yourself and the brutal, I'm happy without you. It's almost like they have opposing views of the relationship, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we didn't stand a chance. Uh, great, great lines. Great, you know, like you said, great rebuttals. Um, just an awesome song. And I love how it even fades out with a finger-tabbing metal solo by Chris Shiflett. Was that a more Metallica-inspired song, too? It's got to be. I mean, there's like really fast finger-tabbing solo stuff all over this record. <laughs> Right, on to the next track. Do it. In the world of caving in, you have so much left to give. Is it worth the time you turn? All the people you have heard, so long to your little friends. This is how the story ends. I'm the only one, cause nobody can anyway. Hate yourself just like I thought you would. Alright, so I got a little bit of a different take on this song, and I'm not even sure if it's accurate, but... A postcard would be nice, I feel like, as a rebuttal to On the Outside because mm. the uh, the Tony's got the whole thing about the, the broken relationship in the previous song, and at this song, he's like, he's still got that heartbreak. He's like, a postcard would be nice, but he doesn't really get the concept that you know the relationship's over. Mm. I'm not even sure if that's how it's actually written. It's just kind of how I heard it when I first heard the songs back to back. Works for me, man. I think, yeah, I think it's just about like wanting to be noticed and maybe friends or or people that you're in relationships with it uh, moving on maybe and just like you're you're forgotten hey a postcard would be nice you know i think he's in denial almost in this song yeah yeah maybe um i love the song because it's just a quick little two minute song um about like you said like attention and how people seek attention in different ways i think the song is interesting because the vocals start right after the drum intro and then basically basically continue throughout the whole song. I mean, there's no leads, no solos. There's no like instrumental breakdown parts, no screwing around. Um, Straight to the point. Yeah. I mean, they didn't even bother to include a chorus. I mean, the song just goes from beginning to end and yet it's still very catchy. Um, According to Rory, this method of songwriting came about due to the abundance of energy within the band and the feeling that they had something to prove Um, with Chris and Matt now in the band and the success of Lecce Con Carne coinciding with the rise of popularity in punk music, uh, they just came out with guns blazing. 
They're like, here, this is us. Let's have it. We're going to give you give you what we got. And I think it's really cool. I mean, they do that a few times on this album, and um, they don't really do it, you know, on any of the albums that followed. Um, so it's kind of neat. It's just a unique thing about this particular record. On to the next one. Secret. Father works a late shift, mother drinks herself to sleep. Brothers outside feeding with a match and gasoline. They told her they gave her no hope for tomorrow. And all the fairy tales just fade away. All right, Jed. I didn't write a lot about this song down. Um, <laughs> you mean you don't have 15 pages of notes? I know. I, I got a page and a half. But, you know, this song is very melodic. It's very flowing. Yes. It kind of slows down the flow of the album. Mm. And honestly, it kind of loses me. Really? And I just hit skip. Or oh. Back in the day, it was just fast forward on the tape deck. But <laughs> So what do, you, what do you got on this song? Um, You know, I like it. it. You know, it slows things down a little bit. You know, it's talking again about a troubled life. Um, but this time from the point of view of a young girl. Uh, the fairy tales have faded away, and her bright days have turned to gray. Uh, her family is dealing with their own problems, and so she's left to sort of deal with hers and her own problems. And you know, even her boyfriend thinks she's crazy. Pretty dark stuff. And you, you, you know, you missed all that when you skipped it. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> sensing a you know a trend though in this album. A lot of a lot of darkness going on. You know, that's actually a funny story. When I was talking to to Rory, he was kind of talking a little bit about Tony and saying that he was such a lighthearted guy. He was like the funniest guy in the room. He wouldn't say much, but you know, he always had sort of like a, a really good, unique sense of humor. And that when this album came out, people kind of gave them shit about how, how dark it was, how dark the record is. Interesting. So, um, just that left brain, right brain kind of fighting back and forth, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I wish I knew how brains worked, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think this song really demonstrates Tony Sly's vocal range, uh, which seemed pretty small on Leche Con Carne, their previous album. He sings in a lower key for the verses and then grabs a bunch of pretty high notes in the chorus. Um, it's a real exercise in vocal range when I'm singing along in the car. <laughs> and that's quite often, right? All the time. Don't you have car concerts? I do. Yeah, I, do. <laughs> I love the last minute of the song when it drops down to just guitar and then slowly the drums build things back up. Dun, 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 dun. Then the layered guitars come back in, bringing the song to a close. I mean, I think that's such a great way to end side A. Side B, back to the galloping drums. Side B, this is the one I always forgot to flip over in my car. <laughs> I love this song. This song is good. It's got that signature Fat Rex style drum beat, that whole driving force right back into it again. Yeah, and like Postcard, there's very little in the way of an intro or instrumental parts. It's not a race, guys. You know, this song is even shorter, but at least at the end they made room for another signature Chris Shifflett guitar solo. Seems to be a trend going on there. Yeah, according to Rory, like, 
I was I was asking about the guitar solos. I was like, what's up with the metal guitar solos? And he kind of pointed out, he made a good point. He said, the songs are so fast. What other solo, like what other kind of solo could you possibly play? That's a very good point. <laughs> Aside from a finger tapping metal solo, just absolutely crazy. I mean, it kind of set the standard going forward though, didn't it? Like a lot of the punk bands with the fast paced songs start throwing in more solos like that, the finger tapping. I mean, I think if you're going to play that that fast and you got to have a metal solo to go with it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, what else, he's right. What else could you possibly play there? Yeah, you're not going to throw a dive bomb in there or anything. On their next album, More Betterness, the songs are a little bit slower, a little bit more melodic, and I think it opened up a lot of room for him to sort of, you know, stretch out and play some different types of guitar solos. But on Making Friends, I mean, every song is fast. Every song is quick. I think that's basically, if you're going to throw a lead line down, that's, that's what you got to do. Covered up your insecurities with everything Showing everyone exactly how you think Made no difference, I can't see right through Your best disguise, you look like someone else Doesn't matter where you hide so the first time I heard this song was on a mixtape that you gave me back in high school. Right. It's actually introduced me to No Use for a Name for the first time through this song. And uh, what caught me was uh, how melodic it was and great use of um, like the palm mutes in the beginning. And then it just yeah. opens up and then into a jumping chaos a little bit. You know, it's got that like dun, 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 up and down chaos mm-hmm. and for the chorus and then back into the palm mutes and everything like that. It was very melodic. I loved the, the whole style of the song. Great structure, great style, great lyrics. You want to empty clips on everyone around and then burn their forges to the ground. <laughs> Another dark. Dark, intense dark. anger. Just, but great. I love it. I but love you, you even said that Tony Sly wasn't really a, a dark person. No. No. Lighthearted. Um, you know, this song is uh, feelings of trying to get back at someone. He seems to be describing someone with a lot of insecurity who puts other people down. Someone who is maybe a little two-faced. It's a great song. Definitely one of my favorites on the album. Hence why I put it as like track four on your amazing mixtape that I made you. (laughs) It was a great mixtape. Track four just hit home. And I agree, man. I love how the song bounces between palm muting and open chords. Uh, The style and structure of this song was very influential on many of the songs that I wrote for our band. I mean, you can hear the introduction to our song, Giving Up Again, in the intro to this song. We did use a lot of palm mutes in some of our songs. And uh, the chugga-chuggas and the palm mutes and then the driving drums right afterwards. Right. I guess it could have been modeled a lot after this. The Ramones, we were not. (laughs) And I I think the whole name of this song, Revenge, just fits perfect with the whole uh, vocal feel of it, you know? Yeah. Sidewalk. Uh, this was always one of my favorite songs on this album. I love Revenge. 
um, and I love Sidewalk. I love them back to back. Um, these songs really get side two of the album off to a fantastic start. I always thought that the song was super catchy and could have been a big song for them. And why wasn't it, you think? I don't know. I just think there wasn't a whole lot of interest in you know, underground punk rock and which is so crazy because then later like bands made it huge on songs that I thought were far, far, far and superior to songs like this one. I, I can give you a different perspective on why it wasn't as huge as you thought. What's that? It was on side B. Side B. Oh. I never flipped the disc or the tape or whatever it was. Do you think like most people just didn't flip it over? I think so. I think a lot of people <laughs> were like me back in the day. They just didn't pull the cassette out. They're like, oh, I'll just oh, rewind man. and start in side A How again. How lazy do you have to be to not flip it over? Well, we were high school kids back in the day. We were pretty lazy. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. Um, <laughs> um, like I said, you know, Tony wrote great songs and most of them really stuck with me. I used to sit... Uh, in my room and read along with the lyrics and the, you know, like when the CDs used yeah. to come with the booklets or sometimes you could send away for him. I loved reading along with the song because it was so straightforward. Um, and though it's a bit simple, I really enjoyed it. You know, he's talking about not taking things in his life for granted because just down the street, there's a man who has nothing. That's a very good point. And there are a lot of great harmonies on this record. And this is a song that really showcases that. I'm not talking about like elaborate Beach Boys style harmonies, just simple, you know, doubling of vocals or light harmonies in the chorus that really give the vocals a full sound. Um, obviously with Matt and Chris in the band, um, you know, doubling up what Tony was doing, um, you know, they really went for it on this album, uh, whereas their previous albums, I don't know, seemingly, seemingly to me featured very little in the way of harmony and backing vocals. I mean, they're there, but not to the level of, you know, we're making friends featured a lot of harmonies and backing vocals and if not harmonies like just like doubling the lead and stuff like that i mean it's just got a really great full well you got to play to your strengths i mean if you got other members in the band that are willing to do those type of things yeah you might as well utilize it the best you can and i think they did Uh, yeah and those guys could sing those guys could sing (laughs) next song three month weekend it's a thursday morning 4 a.m you won't let me go when tomorrow comes i guess i'll never know Another quick galloping blast of a song. Oh my goodness, this has just got drum beats all over it. Love it. I love how we had the mics off too when you when you played that clip and we were both singing along. <laughs> yeah, we were. I don't know, dude. I think I feel like this this the combination of this diesel coffee that you made and this album. I'm like. My heart is like pounding right now and I'm like squirming in my seat. I keep wandering off the microphone. I'm like all over the place over here. I think we need more coffee. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think my heart would explode if I drank any more of this coffee. You want to go jam right now real quick? I feel like the words are coming out of my face faster than I can form them <laughs> right now. And it's like, oh, Your face is kind of drooping in the left side a little bit. You feeling all right? No. <laughs> Call the ambulance. Anyway, another quick one. Another fast blast of a song. Like I said, I, I love these, man. I you know, after making friends, I felt like the songwriting continued to improve and the structures of the songs became more complex. You know, the band was adding more parts, you know, intros, longer bridges, more lead guitars, uh, more of their songs would feature multiple parts. You know, like they had like a slow intro and then a build up and, you know, maybe like a fast conclusion or maybe slow it down at the end. Uh, but these, you know, quick song bursts on making friends uh, obviously became few and far between. 
I just love them all on this album. Um, Again, I think this type of song is really influential to the way we created songs. Oh, that, definitely. That fast style, boom, right into it. You know, we had a lot of stuff just like that because this was just such a great song that, you know, stuck with us. Just go for it. Like, you know, why mess around for two minutes with a long extended intro and you can just get to the point, get it done, you know? Yeah, it's, it's like having your vegetables before dessert. I just want to get to the dessert <laughs> and this song's all dessert. It's all dessert. Yes. I must be hungry. You must be. This is the second time you've mentioned hot dogs. One, two, three, four. I read the morning paper, someone had to You know, it's simple, it's to the point. It's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, solo, verse, chorus, and all in under a minute and 20 seconds, which is amazing. You know, when I listen to this song, I think back about what he was writing in this song and trying to achieve. And then you think about today and how, you know, you can read through the papers and there's all kinds of negativity going on. And yeah. I think he's like, you know, in a, you know, a self-pity mode kind of in this song. And, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of stuff is going on that he's reading, you know, people dying and stuff like that. I just, I, you try to put it in, you know, an atmosphere in today. It's a lot of stuff very similar, you know, even though it was written, what, 20 years ago? Well, 1997, so, yeah. yeah. Almost 20 years ago. Wow. Or a little bit more than that now. More, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot I of stuff My math ain't so good, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I just, you know, I think that, again, just to go back what I was saying before, the song is just... It's quick, it's fast, it's simple. I mean, it's really just too... I don't even know if there is a chorus in this song. <laughs> it just alternates between, you know, these two different parts and then a bridge and maybe a solo thrown in the middle. Um, you know, it just feels like they're racing through these songs. And, you know, if you didn't know any better, you'd think they were just rushing through these songs or, or the process of writing them. But you know what? I feel like it really works. You know, I read something somewhere on one of those punk websites where they, they talked about there's a few of the songs in here that they felt like were rushed and produced just to add filler songs mm. do you think this was one of those or do you feel like oh, it was absolutely not no no way you know one of the reasons why i love this record is that it just charges through with this high energy you know it's not repetitive uh the songs don't feature a lot of choruses or repeating parts and i just i don't know i never get tired of listening to it you know sometimes like you listen to a song and you'll get the chorus stuck in your head and it'll drive you crazy and you get to the point where you're like i never want to hear that song again it's driving me nuts like i can't get this song out of my head um, the songs on this album definitely don't do that. I mean, they get stuck in my head, but they're not driving me crazy with some repetitive line. No, they're finger tapping. You want to listen to them again. And again. <laughs> I want to listen to more Metallica-inspired guitar-tapping solos. <laughs> All right. I think we've oh, we've reached, uh, we've reached the end of the album. Oh, but wait. Q there's, Fields of Athens. There's more.
The inclusion of this cover song by the Irish folk singer Pete St. John always puzzled me. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love it. And I love how Spike from the Gimme Gimme sings on it. Uh, but the Irish feel, the bagpipes, the tin whistles just came out of nowhere on this album. Uh, the Dropkick Murphys also covered this song on their 2003 album Blackout. Uh, apparently Tony's wife was Irish. So, you know, maybe he chose to do the song for her. A little um, ode to uh, his wife, kind of. Sure. That's awfully sweet. Yeah, that's very nice of her. <laughs> and, you know, going back to what I was saying before, you know, the inclusion of this song just seems to work. Uh, the short, fast songs and Fields of Athenry make this album a lot of fun. And I keep going back to it. It's always just really stuck with me as being a record I can listen to over and over and over again. It's also really short. Yeah, I like the bagpipes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, after Fields ends, there's some bagpipes. And then... A secret track. Secret tracks were all the rage back in the day. They were. Do you remember? Like, it would end and, like, you'd see that the time was still clicking by. And you'd be like, what's next? What are they going to do? Actually, I, it was a cassette. So, for me, I didn't see the time. But, you, just, you know, you had that dead air. And sometimes when an album mm-hmm. ends or, you know, the, rec- the, the tape ends, you just don't. You're just waiting until it flips. Yeah. Like, for you, you had the auto flip. So, you'd wait for it to flip over. <laughs> so, you'd wait, like, five minutes and then, oh, what is this? Something I wasn't expecting. Did they put secret tracks on cassette tapes? Yeah, I think so. Awesome. I have the um, the vinyl of this record, and they left the secret tracks off the vinyl. Ooh, which is kind of a bummer. I mean, I get it. You'd have to have a you'd have to balance side A and side B somehow. And um, but I mean, I don't know. Make it make it one more track, one more cut. I don't know what the lingo is, but yeah, no no secret track on the vinyl. That is disappointing. I didn't realize that. Um, and the secret track is amazing because they do a cover of Beth, the Kiss song. Uh, your folks were kind of into Kiss, right? We saw Kiss. We went to see them when I when we were in high school. I think I was, was either our junior or senior year in high school. We went and saw Kiss live. Wow. I think Gene Simmons might have almost died because one of the stages was kind of like on fire. Oh, wow. That might have been just a theatrics for the show, but it looked real. <laughs> That's crazy. So you, so you saw Kiss live. I saw Kiss live, yeah. Was it all? the original members all the original and, members yeah you know even the cat uh, sure they had a cat wasn't the drummer the, the cat? drummer was the cat yeah i don't, I don't remember his <laughs> name i you know gene simmons is the, the nobody remembers the, the cat the game. um but if you told me his name now i'd be like oh yeah that's his name it's just peter chris peter chris. sure i'll take your word for it i don't all even right. know all right I, i'm i feel bad because i saw him live and i can't remember you don't even names. know the guys in the band you saw him live don't even know the guys in the band i'm um, a fraud jed <laughs> that cover it totally caught me off guard when i first heard it i was like why the hell 
are they playing the song? But it's catchy though. It's it the is. Way they, they... It's good. It's so good. They bring so much energy to it and like such an urgency. You know, the Kiss version is so dreamy and sappy. Well, it's very seventies. Piano. You know? you know the hazy vocals. Um, I think, and I'm probably going to receive some flack for this. I think it works better as an up-tempo rocker. I think any of the covers nowadays, or back when we were listening to these bands, any covers they did were better than the originals. <laughs> um, when I asked Rory about the inclusion of the song, he explained that Tony and Chris loved Kiss and came up with the idea while Rory was actually wrapping up some drum work. Um, they he told a, he Rory, was a rapper? "No, wrapping it up, like you know, I finishing." Know. I'm just. I'm, being a pain they they told rory he had one chance to get it right um he thought he was done doing drums they're like get back in there get back in there uh they made him do it uh bang it out one try one you know one go at it and he actually didn't think they were going to keep it um but i love how the end of the song just completely you know falls apart um you know shiplet starts playing the lead guitar line from soulmate off leche and carne and then goes into the lead from beverly hills 90210 that like goofy guitar solo part i laughed my ass off the first time i heard that and then you know at the end with tony yelling for everyone to stop and then he's like fuck you and the whole song crashes into the looping bagpipes i had never heard anything like that on any of the music i'd been listening to up until that point all that 90s alternative rock and classic rock no one was doing that and it was also, you know, all that music was also neat and organized. And I totally realized that No Use was not the first band to kind of goof off on their records, but, you know, it was my first taste of it, and I, I just I loved it. Kind of got that whole feel of how the band was, like you said, very, you know, fun and upbeat, and just like to have a good time. You said at the beginning of this that uh, these guys were just having a grand old time doing everything they were doing. Just goofing off. Goofing studio, off, you know? you know. That's all it was about the back then, making music, goofing off, and enjoying your time. It just sounds like they had a lot of fun recording this record and like, you know, a lot of energy, just a good time for the band coming off the success of Lecce and, you know, two new guys in the band, two rippers, you know, Matt and Chris, and just kind of feeling like they had nothing to lose. Like put out a great record, have fun, go on tour. Um, Just, you can hear it. You can hear it on the record. It definitely portrayed well, for sure. And here's the crazy thing. It's not even the end of the secret tracks. There's more. After like six minutes, the band comes back with a 30-second acoustic song about the members of KISS. Really? Yeah. I did not know. It's a very short, kind of goofy um, thing that I guess they just came up with on the spot. It's so funny. Gene and Paul, I hate you most of all. Ace, you're the ace. And Peter, you're the cat. Cat, you're the. It must have been really fun to just record that stuff and goof around. I actually um, saw an interview with Joey Cape of Lagwagon, and he said um, that Tony was always coming up with like silly little songs, odd little acoustic songs that he would just come up with and play and goof around with. Um, and just, yeah, just had a good sense of humor. That's pretty cool. And I, I don't know if you told me this once, but Joey Cape and Tony Sly were pretty good friends, weren't they? Yeah, I guess they did a lot of touring around together, um, acoustic, acoustic sets and kind of playing on each other's songs. And I mean, they did those two splits on fat where, you know, Tony would play some songs acoustically and Joey would play some songs, some lag wagon songs acoustically. And 
I always really dug those records because you could really sort of hear the lyrics and, you know, gave the songs kind of a different perspective. And, um, yeah, I guess they were, they were pretty good pals. So, Jed, I got a question for you. Yes. Back in high school, we used to see lots of bands play, and we used to go to all kinds of concerts. Yes. Have you ever seen New Fan Live? Uh, actually, yes. I've seen them twice. Really? I saw them once in, I want to say it was 97. It was either 97 or 98. Some friends and I drove out to Cambridge uh, to see him play at the Middle East. And that show was amazing. I forget. I was trying to think of who they played with. But I could not for the life of me remember the opening bands. But I remember it was freezing cold. And we were out standing outside in line. And it took me probably the first two bands to thaw. <laughs> and by the time uh, No Use hit the stage, I was ready to go. And it was just a great show. And it was so fun to see them and to see Chris and Matt. and um, You know, they played on the outside with the, the female backing vocals. and Who sung it there? Chris and Matt did like the bagging vocals for the for the female part, and it was amazing because they they oh they did a back and forth. They hit it. They hit the notes like perfectly. No kidding, that's pretty cool. It's crazy. Were they? I never saw them live, but so in a live performance, did they portray the energy that the album actually had? Oh, totally. Yeah, they were all over the stage, and just you know the sound was good. It was loud, and I just had a, a ton of fun. And you know, then I saw them again. I think like. I wrote it down. I think I saw them in 2000, 2001. I saw them again. So that was right around More Betterness. Yes. Yes. And um, that was in New York at the CMJ Music Festival, which was something that, you know, working for the radio station, we used to go out to New York and just run around the city and go check out bands. Um, and they were playing a set. And I think I made everybody walk like four, 10 blocks to get to where they were playing to go see him just to go see new fan just to go see him like i knew they were playing and i was like we gotta go see them but totally worth it totally worth it totally totally worth it all right so um album cover art and title according to rory the album's title comes from the slang that they used to use when they would go off on tour when you go out on tour you meet all kinds of different people and so you're making friends uh, I guess it's significant because at the time, No Use was touring so much. Uh, they pretty much toured all year in 97, playing around like 200 shows. Was it all United States-based tours, or did they go abroad? I'm not sure if they... I mean, they must have. They must have went to Europe, and but I actually don't know where they went, but they were just on the road constantly, and um, that was the slang. You go out on tour, you're making friends. We're going to go make friends. Go off on tour, make friends. <laughs> I guess that's a good way to look at tour. Yeah. And, you know, apparently not a lot of thought went into their album titles. Uh, Rory mentioned the titles just kind of fell into their lap and, you know, they kind of went with went with it, uh, whatever slang they were using at the time. And it comes, I guess, as a total coincidence that Lagwagon had a song called Making Friends on their 1997 album, Double Platinum. Um, I thought there was some kind of connection. Uh, Rory assured me that it was pure coincidence. So there's no conspiracy theories there. I thought, I totally thought like, you know, back in, you know, when I was like 17 years old, there was like some sort of like connection there. Like, because there are two popular bands around the same time. So, I mean, it's it's very possible. And, you know, according to Rory, they, they basically recorded their albums at the same time. The same guy did the, uh, the tracking and so I was convinced. Maybe Rory's just misremembering. <laughs> Maybe. 
Um, <laughs> and dude, I love the album art. I mean, you've got you had it up on your computer a minute ago. I love it. Uh, Mark DeSalvo did the the art, and it's got, of course, the wholesome Cub Scout troop sitting around the fire. And then, if you look in the background, it's got like some dumb kid on fire. <laughs> Is that really a dumb kid on fire in the background? I'm like, looking at it right yeah. now, and it kind of looks like it's almost like demonish in the background. It's definitely one of the kids. He's like on fire. He's trying to get everyone's attention. Um, just like hilarious. I don't know. Um, that was the kid with a short stick with the marshmallows. I guess. I guess he got too close. <laughs> Singed him up a little bit. Um, and then if you flip the flip the record over, it's got the badges that serve as the song titles. I always thought that was pretty cool. Um, you know, if you if you own any punk and Scott albums from the '90s, you definitely have a bunch of album covers by you know Mark DeSalvo. He did Lagwagon's "Let's Talk About Feelings." He did Mad Caddy's "Duck and Cover." Polly's "Time and Sensitive Materials." Um, Royal Crown Reviews, Walk on Fire. He did all those fat rec comps, some no effects, seven inches. Um, remember that Nitro comp, like Go Ahead Punk, Make My Day? Yeah. Oh, remember yeah. that one? He did that one. Uh, Teen Idols. You can find his art all over the place. He was uh, pretty well established in that whole genre, huh? He was. And I guess apparently uh, Mark was kind enough to respond to an email I wrote him. Uh, he said that he basically just wrote Fat Mike a, a note and said, you know, this is what I do. I'm an artist, and uh, you know, launched a a brief stint, I guess, in uh, album cover design, which is pretty cool. So he wasn't really an album designer before he got into it. I don't think he so. He was just a general. I think artist he was just making... a fan, and uh, just uh, like I said, sent off a note. Hey, I'd love to do this, and see, actually... that's pretty genuine. One of your fans writes in and says, "Hey, you know, I want to make you an album cover." <laughs> And then yeah. next thing you know, you're making album covers for all these great bands. Yeah, that's cool. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. Apparently, uh, Chris Shiflett had the idea for the album cover. Um, he had like a really strong idea about how it should look. Uh, right down, uh, according to Mark, to the Den Leader's mustache. I don't know if you can see it on your Let's computer. pull it back up again. Let's take a quick Right down here. to the mustache. Uh, according to Mark, uh, Chris would stop in every couple of days and see how things were coming. I like his little mountainy hat. Yeah. The mountainy hat. Mountainy hat. <laughs> mountainy hat. <laughs> And apparently Chris uh, wanted it to be a daylight scene, but Mark was like, no, nah, dude, you don't you don't have campfires in the middle of the day. <laughs> he makes a good point. I mean, you're not going to sit around a campfire with a guitar in the daylight. You're going to wait till the sun goes down and tell some scary right. camp stories about the little boy in the background on fire. These are Cub Scouts, man. What, what do they do during the day? They're walking old ladies across the street. They're... Whittling wood. Whittling <laughs> were, you ever a Cub, were you ever a Cub Scout? I was, I was a Cub Scout for like six months. Me too, man. I, I think I made... I was in it for like... Two years. I like the little 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 neck little neck scarf. I never got that far. I, I think I got bored before that. Really? Yeah. You didn't uh, you didn't have fun making birdhouses and we uh, we made leaves. We pressed leaves. Did you, ever, did you ever do that? No. We were out in the yard. It was like fall. We grabbed a whole bunch of like leaves, maple leaves. Whatever. Are you sure you weren't in an art camp? Yeah, I might have been in an art camp. But we took leaves and we pressed them in between paper. We made like stencil drawings of them. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. I think that's the, that's the only memory I have of Cub Scouts. And then I after re- that, I, I, I got into model rockets. Right. Oh, and there you go. Yeah, a little different. The dangerous, little different. The dangerous stuff. We went to the dangerous stuff, you know? The Cub Scouts, like, I just remember, yeah, like, the birdhouses and the, the pine derby cars. Oh, yeah. We did that in high school. Yeah. Uh, a little reminiscing back there. On our own. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, whatever. <laughs> Entertain ourselves any way we could uh, back then. <laughs> Apparently, Mark had to paint the back cover twice because um, the original painting had the Boy Scout salute of three fingers. Which what I does guess that mean? Is little, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I wasn't paying attention, Craig. I was too busy adjusting my Cub Scout neckerchief. 
Um, <laughs> Chris wanted the Cub Scout salute to have two fingers, so like made the guy like redo the whole back to erase the three fingers and make it two fingers. I have no idea why he had I mean, to have You're it. getting paid to do it. You might as well do it right. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mark said the song titles on the badges was, was his idea, and it created a lot of extra work because if you look really closely, I mean, there's a lot of detail in those badges. Um, you know, he, he must have spent just a lot of time, like, painting that and, you know, getting it right and making it look good. I mean, it's a fantastic album cover. I, I love it. The attention to detail goes a long way sometimes. Definitely. Definitely. All right, folks. Well, thank you so much for listening. Craig, thanks for joining me, talking about making friends by No Use for a Name. Thank you for the coffee. Hey, no problem, Jed. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we made friends over this album way back in high school. <laughs> Whoa, nice going. Hey, like that. See what I did there? I did. But uh, I, I'm gonna, I you know, for another coffee. You want more? I, I do not want more. You know what's gonna happen? I'm gonna call you tonight at like two thirty in the morning when I'm wide awake. It's a school night. You can't I'm do like, that. Hey, man. <laughs> it's not a school night. It's vacation. Oh, week next it's week. it's spring break. It's vacation yeah. week next. So week. I might I be might be down in Cabo or something. <laughs> Cabo. I, I hope so. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank Rory for you know taking the time to chat with me on the phone about this great record. I'd like to thank Mark for responding to my email with great stories about the artwork. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Bailey, for... If you don't know, Bailey is Craig's dog. She's barking right now. Who's been barking through this entire episode. I apologize in advance (laughs) if you hear it on the final. But anyway, thanks for listening. This was Talking Records. And, you know, tune in. And like I said, I'll be talking, talking records. And I hope you'll tune in. Thanks a lot. See you later.